Here we go. Rejecting the screen. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West. Adam Stanko, the going ISO edition, as we do every week with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA. Today's guest, John Corrales, host of the number one Celtics podcast in all the land, Locked On Celtics, longtime Celtics writer, former four-year starter and captain of the Emerson College Lions and author of the newly released book, The Boston Celtics, All-Time All-Stars. John, being the first Emerson athlete to play pro ball, you played in Greece. Have any of the Celtics you've covered over the years known that you played pro ball? They've never brought it up. Um, Maybe because they know exactly the level of pro ball that I played, and it doesn't matter to them. So uh, I'm, I'm sure that teams have like a dossier on all of the people that cover the team. So they might they might know that I, I have a little bit of experience, but no one no one's brought that up. I know in Boston they do those media basketball games. Yeah. One, do you play? Two, who's good? Three, who's trash? <laughs> I played in my first one a couple of years ago. Um and I was badly out of shape. I still did okay. Uh, but there are some there are some guys that that can really play. Um, I know that uh, my former podcast partner Jay King is is good, and my former uh, beat partner Tom Westerholm can shoot. Uh, there are actually some some pretty good players all the way around, uh, men and women. So that that's the good thing about about this this beat is we've got a lot of knowledgeable basketball people. And I know that a lot of these guys are, are in men's leagues and stuff. So it's not, it's not a bad run when, when these guys get together. I didn't hear the second part of that question answered. No, I'm not sure if it cut out or what happened there, but I didn't hear who the bad players. Um, I can't tell you that anybody is trash. Um, Although I will say that Jay King did dribble out the shot clock in a clutch moment after the, the name of this podcast is rejecting the screen. He not only rejected my screen, he waved me off to dribble out the clock, not even realize that the shot clock was there. And it was, and we were down one. It was like a game winning shot situation. So um, it was, I, I can't say that he's a, he's a good basketball player. He's a good shooter, but that was a trash possession. All right. All right. Close enough. We'll, we'll let that, we'll let that live at Emerson. You score over 1,500 points, top five in school history, over 1,000 rebounds, tops in school history. At that point in time for you, what is the ultimate dream? See, I I think I had a very realistic approach to who I was. Like, I never even expected to go pro. When, When I played my last basketball game at Emerson, I thought that was it. So I was prepared to go into broadcasting. I went to Emerson and, and studied broadcast journalism. And so I, I could have gone to a better basketball school uh, after my, my senior year in high school. Like I was, I was bad my first couple of years in high school, like barely knew how to play the game. My, my junior year, I was, I was learning. And then my senior year, I broke out and had like 25, 26 points a game, like 13, 14 rebounds. Like all of a sudden everything just clicked so I got a little bit of attention and I, I could have gone to a uh, division two school. I could have, I, I certainly could have gone division two. If I really wanted to focus on my basketball, I had the 
two of the top five division three teams in new England that were recruiting me. Um, so I, I could have been more focused on, on that, but to me, if I wasn't going to be uh, a division one player, then it didn't matter. It, I just, I just wanted to go someplace where I could play basketball, but I knew that my future was going to be in, in broadcasting. So after I'm done with Emerson and yeah, I had this, this great career at Emerson, but my, my focus when I graduated was like, all right, I've got to start looking at my future, my career. Like what, what am I, what am I doing with basketball and broadcasting? My, my whole goal when I went to Emerson was to turn my sports and my love of talking into something that would pay me money. So broadcast journalism felt like a, a natural kind of fit. And, and when we talk about my dream, my dream was to be like the next Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. So then how did Greece happen? My, my coach called me up um, shortly after graduation. He said, hey, look, I, I, I know an agent. And we were talking and your name came up. And he says, he's got a spot for you. And it was as simple as that. And uh, it was it was a little nuts because I had already started the process of falling horribly out of shape as <laughs> former players are wont to do. Like, oh, I don't have to run anymore? No problem. I'm still like, when, when we were playing, like we had like a few good players and then we had some players that were not so great. And so our, our way to win was just to run you out of the gym. And we, like, I, I would come into a season trying to weigh somewhere around 220 pounds. So like 6'5", 220. And by the end of the season, I got down to like 198, 196. I just couldn't keep the weight on because we were running so damn much. So the the metabolism was was great while I was playing. I'd eat 6,000 calories. I was on the, you know, the Michael Phelps diet. Just keep eating and nothing, it didn't matter. Mm. And then once I stopped playing, I kept on eating. And mm. then it started to matter a little bit. So, but anyway, he called me up and, you know, I talked to the agent. He's like, I saw your, I saw your game film and we, we want to, uh, you know, I've got a landing spot for you if you want to, if you want to go. So it happened like very suddenly. So I was like, yeah, um, you know, it was He's like, basically, you got two months. And so I, I spent two months getting back into shape. And, you know, I'd spent the, the problem with me is I, I because I was so bad my freshman year in high school, I had to work so damn hard to get myself to be good that um, I put my body through hell. And this was, you know, back in, in 1996 is when I graduated college. I graduated high school in 1991. So I took a year off in the middle of my, my college. Uh, there wasn't the sports science and where I went to school in Rhode Island and, and Emerson wasn't a sports school. Uh, there weren't exactly big training facilities. So I was just pounding the hell out of myself and not really doing a lot of the things that I needed to do to recover. Um, so I'd gotten hurt. So this was like a, a last gasp. Like I was, I was trying to recover from injuries and I was feeling good, but, you know, uh, trying to get myself back into shape. Um, and that's why my career in Greece last only lasted a season because the, the injury just crept back. It's interesting because I know that you 
have sort of a different perspective, just like Noah and I, I think, want to sort of have a different perspective on how we cover players and teams. And I think people's own experiences always shape that that perspective. And we will get into that. But just on the topic of Greece right now, um, the short time there. But what's one thing playing professional ball overseas that you think the average fan has no clue about? Well, I, I the one thing you don't realize is, is how different it is from NBA that you don't play as much. Um, it's you play one or two games a week at the most. So it's not like an NBA season. So when guys come back over here from playing overseas or, you know, somebody goes over and, and plays a couple of years in Germany or wherever they're playing 30, 40 games. It's almost like a college schedule. So the, the overseas success is is kind of skewed by not just the level of competition, but you've got a lot of time to practice. And there's, you know, morning shoot around, which is light. And then you take a nap. Everybody takes a nap in the middle of the day and you go back and you have a hard practice. You get your, your lift in. But you can really prepare for that next game. Um, and I think that to me is the biggest difference, that that these guys – when they come over to the NBA, it's still a little bit of a shock at, at how quickly things come. So overseas success still requires an adjustment coming into the NBA. Who is the best player that you're on the court with? Um, nobody that anybody would have ever heard of. Oh. That's I played at a low level. You know those old um those old videos of Giannis in those crappy Greek leagues in those <laughs> yes, little yes. Little gyms, you're like, that's where they played basketball. That, that's where I played. Like, if if the the years lined up a little bit differently, he would have been dunking on me. Like, that's <laughs> how like it, little skinny 15 year old Giannis playing in these crappy little gyms. Like that, that's where I played. So there was it was just a bunch of Greek guys that I, I couldn't even remember these guys' names. Like I said, it was that was that was the 1996-97 season. I can't even remember who the best player, you know, on the Celtics was last year. Sometimes like, Oh, that's right. That's right. You know? So yeah, it's been a while. Did you always get your paycheck on time? No, they still owe me money. That's the, that's the other thing that happens. Every single player that goes over there, except for like the best of the best in the top leagues has a story of, yeah. uh, You know, they shortchanged me here or they stopped paying me there. Or, you know, I, like I said, I'd gotten hurt. I, I tore a quad and then trying to get back from that, I, I hurt my back and, you know, they were like, well, we're not going to pay if you're not playing. So that was, that was kind of it. Like, so yeah, they, they didn't pay. They, not only that, I had an arrangement where they had agreed to send like half of my money back to my mom. So I was, they, they put me up. So I had no expenses to live. They fed me, so I had no expenses for food. Um, all I needed was a little bit of pocket money to, to hang around this little village in Nathlio, Greece, which there wasn't much to do. There was one nightclub, which was an awesome open-air nightclub. I went there once and got in trouble for it. And then, so I was like, I don't need the money. So my mom needs the money back home. So can you just like send half of the money back? Just wire it back, make the arrangements. No problem. They never sent any of that back home. And they still shortchanged me money. So they still owe me a lot. But they also know that based on what I was making, which wasn't much, 
they they could do that and okay i could sue them and end up paying more money in a you know insane greek judicial system that it was never worth it for me to fight for it so we've got football and we've got the college football national championship and if you listen to i told you i did i told you that i haven't really been paying close attention to college football but if i had to make a bet then if you took that advice you would have lost money but so there's no need to repeat my advice but i did did. say but i did say don't listen to me just go over to betonline.ag and make your bets it's the simplest way to do it those that's the place that we trust and if you use locked on l o c k e d on locked on you get a 50% welcome bonus so don't sit on the sidelines anymore just get in on the action and use the promo code locked on l o c k e d on to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit bet online your online sportsbook experts no need to guess anymore when it comes to betting if you listen to Locked On Bets, the new Locked On Bets podcast hosted by your boy Q and handicapping expert Lee Sterling, you can get daily picks, quick hitting advice. It's exactly what you need to make the smartest possible wagers. Subscribe to Locked On Bets podcast brought to you by betonline.ag, wherever you get your podcasts. It's wild. There's obviously many business people, as Noah knows well, who will find ways to shortchange you here in the States, yeah. too, in yeah. similar fashion. Um, a podcast for another day, I, I can assure you. 2005, when you, you finally do come back, you and Chuck McKenney decide to start a Celtics blog. What are your memories from the very beginning of this and how you thought it might yeah. play out? Yeah, so we were following a blog called uh boston dirt dogs which covered the red sox yeah right okay so chuck chuck and i went to school together at emerson he was a year ahead of me uh played basketball for a season at emerson and then he he stopped playing ball to focus on his you know schoolwork and stuff and then we reconnected at a job in um in boston at wbz tv we were both news producers and so we were doing overnights and I was producing a 5 a.m. newscast and he was producing the 6 a.m. newscast. So we'd get in at 11 p.m. and, you know, you're tired, you're looking for something to do. And so we started reading Boston Dirt Dogs and we loved it. It was hilarious. There was photoshops. It was so irreverent. And, and we looked at each other and we're like, you know, it'd be so cool to do this for the Celtics. And we kind of stopped for a second. We're like, wait a minute. We should absolutely do this for the Celtics. So we put our heads together and we said, all right, well, how do we do this? Um, what's the name going to be? And we thought, well, if you're a Celtics fan, that means you are a kind of like a disciple of Red Arback. You follow Red Arback. Red is the general. So if Red Arback is the general, then the fans are Red's Army. So we created RedsArmy.com. And the initial RedsArmy.com was so crude because this was before WordPress or Blogger or any of those other sites, or before those became popular at all. And we did, we used a, a Microsoft, I forget what it was called, but it was a, it, what was known as a WYSIWYG editor. What you see is what you get. And so you would arrange 
like, you know, you're making a chart of some sort, you know, text boxes and pictures and everything, and you would write in the text box and publish it. And then I would save the file, send it to Chuck. So he had the updated file. And when he wanted to publish something, he would have to highlight everything, hit delete the thing at the bottom. So that just gone, no history. Highlight the rest, move it down enough so you can put another text box at the top, write what you needed to write, publish that, and then email me the file. So I had the most current file. It was, I mean, think about it now is so ridiculous. It's so insane that we would do that. And that the fact that we kept doing it, like we didn't, we didn't just say, ah, this is dumb. Like never at any point in blogging did we say, this is stupid. We should stop. Like it was, I, I don't know why I'm glad, but yeah, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. So what was your first public recognition from something you posted? Oh whew, man, I couldn't even tell you. Um, I, I mean this, and this was before Twitter. So, I mean, we had, uh, you know, a couple years of just trying to get our stuff on message boards. Like everybody mm -hmm. had a forum, right? Um, so we had the redsarmy.com forums where people would discuss things. Um, I, man, you guys are asking me things. My memory is just so bad. <laughs> <laughs> or do you remember, maybe not the first, but do you remember one that I, made you guys say, oh, wow, they saw that? Yeah. No, you know what happened once? Um, I'll tell you, the, the one thing that really kind of opened our eyes was um, T-Mobile was doing this grassroots outreach and they were looking for local blogs in different markets to like latch onto. And they came to us and they were like, yeah, here's the deal. We'll give you this much money and access to the T-Mobile box at the garden and, you know, this and that. And, you know, they, you know, we'll, we'll fly you to, the all-star game, which was in Dallas that year. Um, you'll get in no problem. We'll give you tickets to everything. And uh, yeah, we just want you to just put T-Mobile all over your site. And you mentioned T-Mobile a bunch. I was like, wow. us? really? What? Like, yeah. So yeah. that was, that was pretty cool. Um, and then from there, like we'd had some discussions with other like local outlets to, to maybe purchase the site. But, but that was, that T-Mobile thing was like the first kind of outside, oh, we might actually have something here because if they're noticing you, then that's, uh, that was like, we, Chuck and I looked at each other like, this can't be real. And was that the, the first credential also? Yeah. Like that's the first, my first, like, Hey, you're, you're behind the scenes kind of look, um, the Celtics at that point weren't really doing that they weren't really allowing that they do a, a much better job now of allowing podcasts and you know non-traditional sites in but uh back then it was it was tough the only way i could get in was through that or if you know uh, a pr department was or not a pr department like an advertising agency like rajan rondo was partnering with dunkin donuts and such and such ad agency says hey come on out and mention dunkin donuts a bunch and we'll let you talk to rajan rondo like that was my only access. Hmm. Uh, Noah and I talk all the time about there was the Jordan economy and all the guys that he got jobs for in LeBron economy. Obviously, 
you have the big three with the Celtics. You guys start the blog before that, but you're going strong as everything comes together. How did things change once it becomes Ray Allen, Kevin Garnett, along with Paul Pierce on the Celtics? Yeah, that kind of changed um... – that that raises everybody's profile right that that's all of a sudden everybody's interested and so yeah we started before that which is kind of ridiculous um but <laughs> I, I will always contend that the blogging sometimes is better when your team is bad because if no you doubt. get to be like a blogger like just a you know no no holds bar just yeah i'm being a fan and this is just kind of fun like that's how we started like there was no dream of turning this into a career at first. So I remember making a Photoshop of Doc Rivers and Danny Ainge standing next to each other and putting I'm with stupid shirts on both of them, pointing to each other. Like that that's a, like a fan thing to do. And I did it back in like 2005. Um, when <laughs> I hope Danny Ainge doesn't hear that and remember that I did that. <laughs> but in the, in the championship years, in the contending years, that that now all of a sudden raises your profile. And you know, Twitter is starting to come around. And so, you know, we're we're more out there. We create um a Twitter account, our social presence starts to to expand and, and things start to get a little bit more serious. I think once I saw how many people were starting to read what we were doing. It went from, hey, this is fun, you know, this is a you know, just for a laugh, to hey, you know, maybe I can do something a little bit more serious with this. I can start like diving into video and I can start, I don't know, putting it out there and, and putting myself out there as as a potential kind of authority in in this sphere so if, if it changed anything if that era changed anything it's that towards the end of that big three era i was starting to feel like i had this this kind of future in this and i i got away from the silly goofy just appealing to the fans just red meat and i just started to say all right let me um let me start writing and and being serious more serious about this and kind of honing a craft because I'd never had never been a sports writer necessarily I'd been a writer because I you know of of my work and I've always been in communications but to to write and structure pieces um, that that started to to come about did anybody in local media take you under their wing no I didn't have like a mentor or anything like that to it was all just kind of self taught at that point and, and using the, um, the lessons that I learned in television writing to just kind of turn that into my, my own writing and my, my own writing has always been, my style has always been somewhat conversational. Um, I've always tried to just, I am, I just want to talk to you and have a conversation with through the, this writing, you know, and, um, some of it is like, more narrative driven and like the longer stuff. But um, I just tried to use the lessons that I learned in, in TV and, and apply them to, to just regular writing. Adam, you get that car situation figured out yet? Why not just go to rockauto.com? 
Yeah. I, I, I had to stop messing around and do that. Actually. I did reliably low prices. I went to rockauto.com. Noah, I just haven't told you about it yet. Right. I want it now. I want to see the video of you actually using the parts and fixing the car. That's, that's what I want. And, and I won't share with anybody else. You can just send it to me. RockAuto.com, family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. RockAuto.com is where you can shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. And Adam has had so many issues with that lemon that Mike Yam sold him years ago. So he needs all the parts from all the manufacturers. So you can go there and use the catalog that's so easy to navigate. And you can see all the parts available for your vehicle. And as Adam said, prices are always reliably low. The same for the professionals and then the do-it-yourselfers or try-it-yourselfers, as I'll call Adam. And I'd put myself into that category as well. Go to rockauto.com right now. You can see all the parts available for your car or truck in the how did you hear about us box, right? Locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space on, locked on, so that they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. When you need fantasy basketball advice, it's important that you have a reliable source. Now, Josh Lloyd is a reliable source for me, the host of Locked On Fantasy Basketball, mm-hmm. more so than any other fantasy basketball podcast. The number one fantasy basketball podcast. Subscribe, Locked On Fantasy Basketball, wherever you get your podcasts. He couldn't help me out last week because I needed one more assist and one more steal to get away. Oh. So oh. in a, in a nine-cat league, you, it comes down to one assist, one steal. We tied in steals at 47. And House of Matumbo, who was playing against, big Denver guy, had 160 assists. And I finished with 159. Ugh. Just gutting. Just gutting. If only there were bigger problems in the world that could take my mind off of losing a fantasy basketball all week like that, then all would be right. But hey, that's, you know, perspective, right? Perspective. And Josh Lloyd's going to tell you, you got to worry about the long term anyway. So he would handle your roster for the long term. And yes, you may lose in assists this week. But guess what, Noah? You're going to be just fine long term as long as you keep listening to Josh Lloyd's fantasy basketball show on Lockdown. It's so interesting you bring that up. You mentioned WBZ. You're a producer at WNYW, uh, New York's Fox affiliate, a producer there. I have production background. Noah has his production background. What lessons do you think that you learned outside of just the writing style or writing for TV as a producer, but but just in terms of approaching things behind the scenes as a media member, now all of a sudden you start to become front-facing. How? What lessons did you learn that you could take to this other side? Well, there's certainly an organizational element to it. There's you know the, the deadlines and the pressures of working as a TV producer. You know, it's, it, doing TV news is... You, you you walk in at nine uh, nine o'clock in the morning and start a you know for a news meeting and your whole day is just deadlines throughout the day and you're constantly flipping and changing things so 
there's a flexibility that is involved. There's an understanding of appropriating your time properly, uh, knowing that, hey, if I, have to, if I have to have something done by this time, this is when I have to start it. Uh, and then just, I think, my TV produ production, um, I think it, it shines through in, in the writing as far as just, I mean, first of all, I like to use my video in in my writing as well like whenever i can um but i i think just the overall kind of grind of it all like tv news is a grind day in day out and and getting used to that grind uh knowing that if something screws up you learn from it and move on it's very nba you screw something up don't do that again move on you've got to adjust Something goes wrong on the air, you got to react, boom, adjust, move on. So if you're in a, an arena and your recorder goes out, okay, how do you do that? What do I have? Okay, I'll go to my phone. What do I do? So there's a quick thinking that it teaches you as well. Um, and, and I think just from the years of just observing, you learn how to observe and, and see what deviates from, from that baseline. Like to me being a reporter now, it's just day in, day out, going to the arenas now when I can, but every day during normal circumstances, I go to the arenas, I sit there and I just watch. And I, I take everything in and understand like this is my baseline and anything that deviates from that baseline now, okay, why did that happen? That's not normal. Why does this happen? That's not normal. And I think TV allows you to constantly every day observe the world and understand what the baseline of the world is and say, okay, this happened. That that's not normal. Well, let's, let's look at that. Why, why did that happen? Um, is that a one-off or is that something that is, is um, a part of a trend and, or could be part of a trend. So that daily constant observing in television is also part of it. Um, and allows me, I think, to to notice some things fairly quickly about, oh, this is different about a player. I know it's only been a couple of games, but uh, this is I, I see that this is totally different about what this guy was doing last year. I just did something like that on Jalen Brown. Like all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you're a pick and roll ball handler now. Oh, all of a sudden you're passing from there. That's not at all the same. So long answer, but the, those those are the things that I would lean on. But one of those things about TV news is that. Oftentimes you do a story and then there is no follow-up. It's usually, it, it could be just a, a one day thing. And then you're on to the next story the next day when covering a basketball team, you're there day after day after day, essentially they're all follow-ups. So whatever the experience is like with the 08 team, or even when the team was, was getting the, the national attention where you may have screwed up, or someone in, in PR or one of the players or coaches didn't agree with what you wrote and you had to follow up. You had to be back there the next day. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky that I haven't had any of that kind of experience. Um, mm. Like no, I, I've never been confronted by a player to say you are way off. Um, I've never had a coach pull me aside and be like, this is not, this is your, <laughs> sorry, buddy. Try again. Um, which I don't know, maybe I just haven't been doing, I haven't been in the locker rooms for more than a couple of years. So I, you know, maybe, maybe KG would have done that, but 
Um, I feel like that I've, first of all, I don't try to be hot take guy. Um, and that's, I think different. Like a lot of people think that you got to be hot take guy to succeed. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe you've got to be, you know, the Nick Wrights of the world to just go out there and be willing to say anything and put like, take it to the extreme. But I'm not, I'm just not going to do that. And, and maybe that'll cost me money and status or whatever, but I don't care. So because I'm not putting the, like the crazy hot takes out there, maybe I'm not putting myself in a position to get, uh, get into those situations. But yeah, I've, I've been, I've been pretty good. Like every, my relationships with the players aren't like in depth, but I haven't had aside from Carson Edwards, for some reason, who rolled his eyes when he, he once, I, when I once said I had to talk to him, um, every, every other player has been really cool with me. So I haven't had that. <laughs> rolling his eyes at you for maybe all the other guys no saw, saw your tape from Greece and they know that you played, so they're not going to mess with you. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, Carson's too young. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. <laughs> you know, I would hope so. But seriously, like, I, I would hope. I don't think they they know me from playing or anything like that. But I, <laughs> I would like to think that my experience, having played the game, allows me to ask questions or approach questions from a place where they can at least be like, okay, this guy knows a little something. I'm sure. Uh, the way I put it is. These guys, like I, I'm, I'm a, a high school science teacher. Like I can get you through the periodic table of elements and build one of those volcanoes that erupts and all of that stuff, and 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 get you through high school science. These guys are astrophysicists, and they understand like, oh, that's good. You know a little science, but they also understand like you're still just a high school science teacher. But the fans who don't have any of that experience are just sitting there kind of like, Oh, okay, cool. I'll like, I get to learn a little science here. So I think that that's, that might be why I, I at least can exist there without having like consternation or confrontation. Knowing the game like you do and, and writing the way you do and being able to communicate it in a way that, you know, it might be in depth, but we can all understand. Has it led to any of the coaches or an opportunity with a coach or someone in the video department to say, Hey, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing this. Am I on the right track? Are the Celtics open to hearing from you that way? Um, you be honest with you. I've never asked that question. Okay. I, sh- I shouldn't say I've never asked that question. Um, I have asked a similar question to, <laughs> but I asked it to Brad Stevens. <laughs> he was like, John, you know, I can't tell you that. Um, so I haven't, I haven't gone to the video guys. I haven't, I haven't done that. Um, maybe I should a little bit more. Like, uh, I'll be honest. Like my, my weakness as a reporter is I, I don't, I, I don't probe like, like that. Like my question, whenever I want to talk to somebody, I'm asking a question for a story. I'm not great about just saying like, Hey, what do you think of this? I wrote this, or am I right about, like, I haven't, I haven't done that. Like it's just never crossed my mind. Um, I've only, like I said, uh, I was in Phoenix, Celtics playing the Suns, and I got to sit courtside. And so I heard like every single call, I heard everything that Brad said. So afterwards I was like, so uh, what does this mean here? Is this uh, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, John, you can figure it out if you watch the tape. 
I'm not going <laughs> to tell you what we're doing. I was like, all right, all right, all right. So that's that's the extent of that. So <laughs> uh, two years ago, you quit your job to cover the Celtics full time, and I'm curious mm-hmm. how how that comes about, and just the level of of fear is probably the wrong word, but just now all of a sudden the net's gone from the tightrope. You go to make that move. Um, just, just how did this all come about? Yeah. So I, it, it goes back to like that conversation from before where, you know, I'm writing, I'm blogging, uh, I I'm feeling real good about what I'm doing. And at this point where the podcast is going and it's going all right. So uh, my Twitter following is good. I feel good about where I stand in the market. Uh, I've been living in New York at that point for about seven years, which if you're not going to be a lifer in New York, seven years is probably your your max. Uh, so I had just been, I'd, I'd moved out to, to Forest Hills, Queens and was working in Manhattan and just getting, getting to Manhattan from there with the, the trains, it was just beating the hell out of me. So I'd had enough with my job, which I loved my job. My job was okay. Um, I, I got to do on-air work in, in New York City, which was huge. But um, the whole experience, I, I just had enough. Uh, I was ready to say, you know, I've got a little bit of money saved. Uh, I know what I can do with the podcast. I know what I can do freelance writing. I'm going to do, I, I got a, a two-year plan to say, all right, I'm either going to do this or I'm not like, I I can't do both TV work and this stuff on the side. It's just too much because I got to wake up in the morning to get to work for a nine o'clock morning meeting. And then I got to stay up till 1am after a game to follow the game, write about the game, podcast about the game, edit, post that, all of that. So it was just burning the candle at both ends. It was unsustainable. So I said, I know I can get a TV job whenever I want. I know enough people in the industry. I know I'm good at what I do. So if, you know, worst case scenario, I could just always move back to New York and, and try it again. Uh, but whatever. So I, I took the leap. Now, luckily, um, at that point, Mass Live was, was hiring. And the, the funny thing is that I had applied for a Mass Live job before that a couple of years ago prior to that and kind of got like a form. Thanks, but no thanks. And Mm. then I applied to this job again and didn't hear back at all. So that's Mm. when I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to go do this on my own. They don't want to hire me. Forget it. So I get back and then I'm, I'm going to Jay King's apartment and he turns to me, he goes, why didn't you apply to the mass live job? And I said, I did. They said, well, you better call them because they want to talk to you. Turns out they had lost my resume. And Uh-oh. so I, I, I had, yeah. So if I didn't come back, I don't know if, I, if Jay and I would have had that conversation. So then I get into uh, Mass Live ends up hiring me. Uh, that was my, my first day for Mass Live was the beginning of the 2018 season. And now I've done it again. I left Mass Live this month. Um, and back on my own, taking another leap, doing this again, um, and, and hopefully on to just bigger things. What is, what is that leap? Leaving Mass Live well, and doing what? Um, 
I'm kind of back to my other plan. Like I'm right now, I'm my primary source of income is the Locked On Celtics podcast, which luckily can be my primary source of income um, for for now. Like this is this is it's it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm lucky enough that you know having built that um, to that level. Obviously, half of that is with Jay and with Sam Packard. Like, uh, but still keeping that strong over the past couple of years and and having it grow to this level, I'm I'm lucky. So I can lean on that, and I'm I'm back to doing the Reds Army. I'm doing my beat stuff there, and I can do some freelancing, and hopefully a couple of these calls that I've made will will work out, and I get back into a a full time beat job or or something. Uh, and, and that's the thing. Like right now. I'm kind of looking at coverage of the team and saying, you know, is, is the way this team is being covered right now, is that, is that the right way it's being covered? Because I have an opportunity here that I don't have to sit here and write 10 stories a day, uh, churning out 500 word things to, to constantly drive in kind of SEO driven headlines. I have an opportunity to say, okay, how is this team covered? How should people be consuming this? How are people consuming this? What is what's out there appropriate? Or am, do I have an opportunity here on my own to build a type of coverage of this team that maybe is, is different enough where I stand out in the market just on my own? And that mm-hmm. builds into something. So, you know, I'm lucky. I have an entrepreneurial spirit from my dad who came over from Greece and started his own businesses and and i i grew up watching a guy say you know what i don't need your money i'm going to do this for myself and Hmm. and taking chances and betting on himself um and doing well with it so that taught me early on that you know you can go work for somebody that's fine but you could also do it yourself and if you if you know how to do it um he had pizza places Say so if you know how to do this, and if you're better, then people will find you. And yeah, you know, I'm lucky to have had a a good following, a good Twitter following, good social following. Now, I have an audience, and no matter where I go, I think most of my audience is just going to read my stuff because I'm tweeting it out, and they they seem to like it. I guess that's why they follow me. So I'm going to see like what do I do with that? How do I how do I maximize that? Is it just a matter of me being marketable? Or is it a, a, an a opportunity for me to change how sports and basketball is covered in 2020? Is there an opportunity there? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but at least I have an opportunity now to find out. What was your favorite slice at one of your dad's pizza spots? Oh, well, my, my dad and I, we would experiment with stuff. So, I mean, first of all, uh, and this is like, my dad made the best pizza. Like it wasn't just like, oh yeah, we work there and it's good, but you know, whatever he, when I talk about an audience following me, like that's directly from my dad with a pizza place. Like huh. he had, he had like four or five different locations that he just, he would move into a bigger place and then a bigger place. And I would see customers walk into one place, which was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island to another place that was in Seekonk, Massachusetts, that and then another place that was in Attleboro, they would just go to these different places. Wherever he was, they would show up. They would find hmm. him and specifically seek him out. So um, any slice that my dad made was great, but we would also experiment with 
all sorts of combinations. We would make calzones. We'd see what we can stuff. We could test the integrity of the dough. <laughs> how much tensile strength does this dough have? How much can we stuff into this thing and still make it a viable thing to eat? So that was that was also a lot of fun. And another reason why I would easily put on weight in between basketball <laughs> seasons. <laughs> Let's move on to the book. Speaking of you know doing something on your own, that that entrepreneurial spirit. The book is out. I do need to read it. It's the Boston Celtics all-time all-stars. Now, I grew up in Philadelphia where oftentimes on my birthday, which was December 22nd, it was oftentimes Sixers Celtics around either the 21st, 22nd, 23rd at the Spectrum. So I grew up despising Bird and McHale and Parrish. But as I've gotten older, you realize, well, that's just kind of silly. That's because you were a kid. So I'd imagine a lot of those are, (laughs) of course, are parts of the all-time all-stars one how does one come to the idea of here's how i'm going to write this book and then if you would follow up with how do you release a book during a pandemic yeah that's a great question i (laughs) so the people at lions press reached out to me um with great timing because was after i i'd moved from new york back to boston I got a message from someone at Lions Press that said, hey, we've got this book series. Um, we're, we want to do a Celtics one. We like what you do. Would you be interested in writing a book? Oh, cool. said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to write a book. That would be kind of awesome. And so they they told me the idea for for the book. And I said, all right, well, if I'm putting together – an all-time all-star team, then I got to build it like a regular all-star team. So um, it's two players at each position. And I, I decided to do, okay, point guard, here's my pool of candidates. I'm going to figure out who the starter is and who his backup is. So now I've got two point guards. Do the same for all five positions. And then all of the people that I cut from that round – go back into the mix and I got to figure out two wild cards to add to this team and then two coaches. So by doing it that way, I, I kind of put some pressure on myself because some of these positions are stacked. And so how do you, how do you build an all time all-star team? Now it's not, you can, you can do a, the best Celtics team ever. And maybe I would pick 12 different guys because then I'm saying, okay, here's my, here's my starting five and here's my bench and how do they play with each other? That would be a potentially different team. So I, I decided to do it by position and with the wild cards. Um, but the process of writing the book started in 2018. So releasing a book during the pandemic was uh, just by pure bad luck. Um, and doing it this way has um, has presented a challenge, I'm sure, because I can't appear anywhere. I can't go to a local bookstore and do a signing or anything like that. So hopefully all of my begging on Twitter has been enough to kind of boost the sales and get good ratings on Amazon. So people go, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll buy that. But but yeah, it's it's it was a two-year process of you know a lot of research and and for me, Celtics history is is a little bit of a labor of love because 
again, I'm the son of Greek immigrants. My dad came over in like 1968, 69. My mom came over in 1971 and I was born in 1973. So they came over and they're working. They're new to this country. Basketball, sports, they're not really paying attention. So I don't have a childhood of dad used to bring me to the games. Or like you were saying that, you know, you'd see these games over and over as a kid and you'd, you'd build this up. My first exposure to the Celtics was in the 1980s, sitting in front of a big zenith in a wooden box that we, you know, begged to get cable and I got to see some games and and watching Larry Bird in the mid 80s and, and, and that era of basketball, like that was my first exposure to NBA basketball. And really, I remember thinking like, who, how do you win this game? Because every time I watched, they were making shots. Like I didn't see anybody missing shots. So I was like, how, how, how does this game go? So it took a while for me to figure out how everything in basketball works. So <laughs> after the fact, I had to like, as I got into basketball, because I was tall, I, you know, got more into the game. I'd go back and start learning more. So in high school, I'd learn a lot more about Kevin McHale because at six, three, at that point in high school in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, you're a giant. So it's like, you better learn some post moves, son. So here's who you got to study. And, and that's how I start getting into these players. And you learn, you know, oh, okay, here's Jack Sigma. I didn't know who Jack Sigma was until I started watching his film to, to, in, you know, impact my own game. So I had to go back and learn a lot about this stuff kind of on my own. I didn't have childhood memories. So in some ways that hurt, but in some ways it actually kind of helps because I don't have uh, any sort of emotional attachments to more than a couple of the obvious guys like Larry Bird makes it spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Like he's on the team. Uh, but that's about it. And Kevin McHale, who's like my favorite player of all time. Okay. So I understand now how you have to promote this book and I understand now what's in it. So I'm curious about the actual process after you're asked to do it day one, you need to write this book. You say it's a labor of love. What's the first thing you do? when it's time to start writing the book? So I start going through basically by position. I start saying, okay, who, who are the point guards just, just by name recognition that, okay, I'm start writing down my list. These are the guys that I know have been good. So you put down a list of however many, 10, 12, 15, whatever, less five. And then you start really, digging into each each guy's career um and some guys that i thought were obviously going to make it for me didn't uh because you start going into their careers and you say all right this guy played this many years for the celtics this many years somewhere else so i'm looking at his celtics numbers um what era did he play in and so now when I'm looking at guys in the fifties and the sixties, I have to say, all right, well, what was that era of basketball really like? Because I need some contextual kind of understanding that there were eight teams in the NBA. So I can't just go look at the stats and say, oh yeah, Bill Sharman. Sure. No problem. He's on this team. He look at his numbers. Uh, you got to understand different elements of, okay, why did Bill Sharman average this? What was the league like? So you really start reading a lot of 
as many interviews as I could find of, of these players, uh, as many interviews that mentioned these players, and start reading about the history. Because obviously, I wasn't there for the 50s, the 60s. I didn't watch any of the 70s. I was, I was a, a child, and I just told you that I, I wasn't watching basketball back then anyway. So you start really kind of piecing together, okay, this is what the 50s were like. Uh, this is what the 60s were like. And a black player in the 60s faced a lot different environment than a white player in the 60s. So did a black player do better? If a black player still was awesome in the 60s through all of the stuff that he had to go through, then that's like a little bit more impressive to me. That adds a little bit of weight. Like when you're, when you're facing virulent racists through the South, and being told you can't sleep at this hotel and you still go out there and you drop, you know, 30 and 15 on a team, like, all right, well, that's, that's, uh, that's meaningful to me. Uh, and the same is like before the league was fully integrated, some of that success for, for those guys, you have to weigh that against the best players in the world were, might've been playing for the Harlem Globetrotters at that point. So there's a lot of basically just, like one big history lesson um, and trying to make my own decision as informed as possible when, when trying to put this together and add that level of context to say, yeah, this guy was good, but, or this guy was, was maybe the numbers were, eh, but there's this. All right. So that's the very beginning. The end of the process, finished product book is sent to you and People that I've spoken to say that it's an experience unlike anything else when they actually touch and feel and see their book in their hands for the first time. What <laughs> yeah. was that like for you? Um, it's It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. To see my name on a book, um, it doesn't make sense. Um, the fact that I wrote this, I, I, I don't know. It feels like this feels like a dream. Um, I know it wasn't because I spent um, days and days and days at Cafe Nero in Somerville drinking all of their coffee and eating all of their snacks. I probably should give them a proceeds, proceeds from the book, uh, but I wrote so much of this at a coffee shop because I just needed a change of scenery to, to be able to focus. Um, I know I did the work, but I don't know. It's It's... This none of this makes sense to me. Like none of this. I I I definitely have that that imposter syndrome going on. That I wake up almost every day thinking, okay, this is the day where people say, yeah, you know what, we've had enough of John. Like that's goodbye. It was a nice run. Uh, you know, I'm gonna call somebody from uh, you know TV production and go back into that. Like at the the end of the run. So to see a book come out with my name. I, I don't know. It feels photoshopped. So um, it's really it's really cool. And I'm glad that I was able to do it. I'm glad that I was able to mention some important people in my life uh, in the acknowledgments. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you that the happiest thing I was able to do, um, I kept the entire project from my mom. Um, she's again, she's Greek immigrant. She keeps to herself. She doesn't have the Internet. So I didn't tell her that I was doing it. Um, she finally found out like last week from my sister 
which spoiled the surprise, but I wanted to give her the book so she could be like, what's this? Um, but I still gave her the book and she just looked at it and started crying. Hmm. Um, she saw, she saw like, she's looking at my name. She's looking at the book. She's flipping through it. She probably can't even read 90% of it, but she's just crying at, at this thing that I've done. And I, I honestly, I don't care if I sell another copy of the book like that right there was worth it to me because, and I mentioned this in the book, my mom is the one that pulled me off the couch when I was like five or six and didn't want anything to do with sports. She's the one that brought me to a little league game or a T-ball league game. Um, I was very content to be a chubby little kid reading books at that point and, you know, learning how to read. And I was really engrossed in books. And she was like, you know what? You got to get outside. You got to play some sports. And if it wasn't for her, like, I don't know where my life would have been. So that, that moment, everything that my mom's meant to me, everything that she's been for me, all the support, everything like that reaction, like that's, that's everything right there. Like that, that makes everything worth it. Why did she do that? Why did she take you off the couch and introduce you to sports? I I think she just saw that I, I was just very happy to sit there and do nothing. And she didn't want me to, to do nothing. Like she, my mom loves sports. She'll watch any sport on TV. Like I I'll go over her house and she's got golf on or (laughs) soccer. And she's, she isn't like, it's not like she's like a rabid fan of any team, but like Arsenal, Chelsea. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's on Christmas. Let's watch some, some soccer. She's got it on. She likes it. Um, big hockey fan. I, I watched more hockey as a kid than I did basketball. Um, and it was, I guess just her way of saying like, you got to be active. You cannot just sit here. Um, it's great that you can read. You know, I, I could read a little earlier than most kids, but that's not all there is to life. Uh, and she grew up in, you know, post-World War II Greece, where Nazi occupation was a recent memory. And there wasn't, there weren't all of these distractions uh, and, and there, you had to get outside. You had to be active. Kids had to play outside. So she was like, you've got to play outside and this is what you got to do. So, and I cried. I remember crying. I don't want to go. And she's like, <laughs> you have to go. And then like after the first practice, I was like, I love it. This was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> did, did they speak Greek in the house? Yeah, they spoke Greek and I responded in English. This is how we kind of taught each other. So they would speak Greek to me. And I would speak English to them and they would kind of learn English through me and I would learn Greek through them. Were you ever, the, the reason I asked, I was thinking about maybe why she pushed you off the couch was maybe like assimilating more to American culture. That was that's something that came into my head. Were you ever as a kid worried about having friends over and your parents speaking Greek? Um, no, I, 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 I was always, um, I would never really have like a lot of friends over, like we'd all play outside. Um, And they would, you know, and my dad had his restaurant, so he would learn enough English. And so they, they spoke well enough. And, um, and, you know, they weren't, they weren't trying to be like super Greek. Um, Like I wasn't forced to go to Greek school. I wasn't forced to do the Greek dancing thing Mm -hmm. uh, with those old uniforms and everything. (laughs) I was never pushed into that. Uh, And that's like something else that, I, um, I'm thankful for that. They didn't force me to do anything that really pushed me, 
uh, other than going into sports, but like they never forced me to be somebody that I wasn't. Um, so which was cool. Like whenever I, yeah. I dated a girl, like it didn't have, Oh, she's not Greek. Oh my God. Like it was, it was cool. A few unrelated questions as we start to close this out. And we really do appreciate the time. The 08 Celtics. Why is it that it seems like that championship is talked about like a dynasty instead of just one title? Because that team wasn't the best of those that that era. That the following year's team was better. And Kevin Garnett hurt his knee. And mm-hmm. that cost them that following year. Like there's my fervent belief is that 09 team would smoke the 08 team. Uh, that extra year, that extra experience, they, they just, they just had it. And then KG comes back and that 2010 team is up in the finals and Kendrick Perkins hurts his knee, get tears mm-hmm. his ACL. And so the Celtics lose game seven because Pau Gasol has like a million rebounds and a million offensive rebounds. And Kobe Bryant, I believe had a bunch of rebounds and, and our feeling in Boston has been, man, if Perk didn't tear his ACL, then he would have boxed out at least a few of those, a few different, a few rebounds go a a different way and the Celtics win that series. So the feeling in Boston is that team was good enough to win three straight was absolutely good enough to win three straight. And if it wasn't for a couple of injuries, they would have now, obviously when you win a title, you, you are supposed to have some of that luck. Like the Raptors have a title because of injuries to the other team, but that that's how it goes. Like no champion has ever won without some form of luck, but in Boston, I'll tell you to a man, everybody in Boston believes that team was three championships good, and they only won one. Danny Ainge has certainly established himself as one of the elite executives in the NBA, and I always say it's an, an executive's league. They, the guys that are the top execs seem to always have their team in great position. They're never in a bad spot in terms of the cap. Just always have things figured out. They're a couple steps ahead of everyone else. You've had Danny Ainge on, on your show. You know him personally. What is it you think about him that has put him in this class where he's among the league's best? I I think he understands that attachment to players uh, on a personal level is not conducive to good business. And I don't say that to say like he doesn't like anybody. He has good relationships with players, but he understands that there's a business to the NBA and your job, your obligation as a general manager, an executive is to put together the best team that you possibly can, which sometimes means you have to make tough decisions or sometimes means you have to cut somebody or tell somebody that they're traded. And Isaiah Thomas. it's, and that's right. So he is willing to separate the personal stuff from the professional stuff. And he loves Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas loved Boston. Isaiah Thomas will tweet 
as often as you'll let him that he'll he's happy to come back to Boston. Um, but he, uh, Danny Ainge, is thinking that look at that point Kyrie Irving was better for the Celtics and it doesn't always work out the way he envisions it, but he has his plan. Um, and, and he's just gonna, he knows the value of his guys. He knows that everybody is available and it's just a matter of does the right deal come along and, and how, how does this work? Um, if the deal that's there in front of him, does that make the team better in the ways that he wants the team to be better Then he's going to do that deal? And it can involve Jason Tatum. It can involve Carson Edwards. It doesn't matter. It's it's just a matter of what makes the team better. And you know, for better or for worse. Now that that works, people say that works against the the Celtics. We've seen free agents leave. I, I think we're just in an era that this is people understand business is business. There's so much money involved. There's so much at stake that business has to be separate. Was Kyrie Irving misunderstood or is this exactly who he is? A little both. I think Kyrie Irving is at his core a a guy who's what, 20, 27, 28, um, still trying to figure himself out. Like he had he is now very heavily into his Native American identity from his mother's side. That's mm-hmm. something that we saw um, start to really happen when he was with the Celtics. Um, he's he is on a journey. Like that's that's true. He is still figuring himself out. Um, I think that's the misunderstood part. That he's, and I think a lot of us in our twenties have gone through similar similar spiritual, emotional, intellectual types of you know uh, metamorphosis that. I know that the person that I was at Kyrie's age is nowhere near the person that I am now. We all go through it. So there is an element to what Kyrie says and does that I just chalk up to, for lack of a better term, I don't mean this disrespectfully. He's a kid trying to figure it out. You know, and, and I can say that as a guy who's 47. You know, Guys in your 20s, you're kids to me. So he's a kid trying to figure out in a lot of ways. Um, but at some point, he's also like there is a level of arrogance there from being so good at something for so much of his life that you, I guess, there's a natural error. Like he, I can, I can rail against him calling himself a genius. Then you watch him play basketball for five minutes. You go, yeah, yeah, I guess he is. You just got to deal <laughs> with it. But mm-hmm. you know, the but but when he says, "I'm not speaking to pawns," or speaking to pawns is a, a, you know a waste of my time, like. That's also something that somebody in his sphere has to say, like, all right, look, that's that's not right. You can't say that either. Like you can you can say a lot of things and you you live in a different world than the rest of us, sure, but you can't you just can't be disrespectful to people. You know, the, the people on the beat are people are friends of mine that are essentially me. Uh, not just don't cover them anymore, but it's like a bunch of people who don't get paid a ton of money to work their asses off. And they're just trying to, they're just trying to talk to the guy and write stories. I don't think there's a whole lot of gotcha going on that that's, that's something else. But um, I, I just think that sometimes his kind of thinking his, his, he's a very stream of consciousness guy when he speaks. 
and it gets him into trouble. And I don't think he always says what he's trying to say or wants to say. Uh, and maybe that's why he really was trying to put out a statement because he speaks so stream of consciousness that seriously, when I was transcribing them, I'm like, where does the period go? Where do the commas go in here? I don't know where to, how do I punctuate these 10 lines of things that he said? Cause it's all one sentence. So he's a complicated guy. He's a complicated guy. Some of the stuff that he gets, he deserves some of it. He doesn't. All right. This has been awesome. I have two, two questions for you, both non NBA related. First one as someone else who's started actually I, in no, local news i was a one-man band and a, and a news reporter i'm curious i don't care if it's anchor ego or what what is your favorite wild this was local news story jeez so many different um i mean it could be any one of these suspicious packages that we covered and had the chopper over and it turned out to be like somebody's backpack or a lunchbox or something that was, you know, especially, um, especially after the like Boston marathon bombing or something like that, where people are just on edge and everybody, there was a, when I was in New York, there was, a uh, some explosions that were in, um, I forget where it was like the Lower East side or something, but, Whenever something big happens like that, there's always like the the people who are afraid. So it's very local news to like launch the chopper, go up, and all of a sudden be like, "Oh, they uh, they just blew up somebody's lunch." So sorry, dude, you have to go buy yourself another ham sandwich. Uh, any any one of those I think would qualify for that. All right, and the last one for me. I've been making a lot of my own homemade pizza. And I'm close to perfecting it. No, I got to yeah. tell you, it's it's delicious. Um, my all right. So here's my only question. My wife's been been making the sauce. So tomatoes, hand pressed, of course. Uh, olive oil, salt. Throw some basil in there. My question for you: Do you add any sugar? Yeah, just a little bit, just a tiny bit, not much, just a little bit. Yeah, that's it. salt, pepper, a little sugar, garlic. I hope you're putting garlic in there. Of course, yeah, yeah. Garlic you know, well. you know, you got to do. You've got to cook it. You like, you, you got to cook it. You got to throw a bay leaf in there. Do you use? You make sauce with a bay leaf? Oh no! And it looks like a no. That, see, this is what you got to do. You to make the good pizza sauce, you got to throw your spices in there and all that stuff. However, you want to spice it. Throw in a bay leaf or two, depending on how much you're you're cooking. Um, but that'll give it a nice little flavor too. Mm -hmm. If you've ever like a bay leaf, it's like, seriously, it looks like, you know, a five inch long leaf. You throw yep. it in there, cook your sauce. Um, even if you're reheating some canned stuff, just put it in a low simmer, let it really soak in the flavors there. Then you let it cool off and then you can use it as the sauce for your pizza. It'll, it'll, it'll give it a little kick there that, that changes things for you. Whenever I make a, a red sauce, Oftentimes with, if I'm making mussels at home, there's always two bay leaves in there and some, yeah. some peppercorns and garlic. Yep. Bay leaves are yeah. a, and also you can put bay leaves in, in your clothes drawers, like in between. Oh, really? And things. And it keeps, um, it, it keeps things smelling fresh. And I think it does something for moths as well. Oh, well, see, yeah. that's something I, I didn't realize. Now, here's another secret to making pizza. 
When you make your dough, do you just make it fresh and then cook your pizza? Yeah, but sit out though. Make it make your dough the day before. You you make your dough, you let it rise, you pound it down, let it rise a mm-hmm. second time, you cut it into your little balls or whatever, you put it in the fridge, put it in like a, a cookie sheet or a pan or something like that, uh-huh. cover it with a garbage bag, throw it in your fridge. That'll give it one last kind of low rise. Then the next day, you take it out, you let it get to room temperature, you roll it out. And this way, when it's in the oven, it's not going to rise on you. It's not going to give you a lot of bubbles or anything like that. It's going to be a nice, even kind of cook. Love that. Adam has four kids. There is no way he has time to make pizza <laughs> over the course of two days. They're just like, I can, I can see him nodding like, yeah, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. But also in his head, like, there's just, there's just no, no chance. Way. <laughs> well, take it or leave it, but. That's no, J- John, trust me. I, I I just the difference when you have four kids, you just got to pick your spots. The the best part about listening to you during this whole interview is that throughout I've been nodding as you're like, "Yeah, I spent a lot of time writing the book in the coffee shop." And I'm like, "Oh. Oh yeah. What I wouldn't do to get to the coffee shop for 15 minutes away from these kids." <laughs> <laughs> I, I do come from a childless perspective, so yes, that's <laughs> All right, final oh question, God. John, as we ask all of our guests, it's the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So of all the guys that you've covered with the Celtics, who would yeah. you choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get your team a bucket? And I, I assume, well, you didn't cover Jay King, but at least he was on the it's, beat, and I assume Jay King certainly. would not be your guy here. He's <laughs> not, not a big player. No. Are you talking players? Players yeah, that I've covered? Player player yeah yeah um i still would say that that at at this point it's still Kyrie. like he's the best iso player tatum is close but he's nowhere he's nowhere near the creator like Kyrie, say what you want about the guy but he's the one guy that you could he could trip him you could hit him over the head with a frying pan it doesn't matter. You could you can put all fifteen guys on the floor with him somehow, some way. With that handle, he's just gonna find a way to get free. And I I trust him to get to a spot where that shot is gonna have a chance to go in. He's he for everything that he is, he's right about being a genius. That's can't knock him for that. So I, I have to go with Kyrie. Yeah, I mean, he'd miss the next three weeks, but at least he would have gotten you the bucket. Hey, there. I mean, if I just need that one bucket, if right. it's, you know, you gun need. to my head and he's got to get that bucket so I can live, like, I still, you know, now if I was in the locker room for Paul Pierce, like I wasn't in the locker room for Paul Pierce, mm-hmm. I, I would have said, I would have said Paul, but just to stay true to your question, um, I, because I've, I've, the only times I've talked to Paul Pierce has been after he left the Celtics um, and after he quit. Uh, so, but yeah, it's gotta be Kyrie. I just love the thought that the frying pan would absolutely cause the deviated septum. <laughs> <It's Yeah. right>. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly would, but you know, Hey, maybe, maybe if he sprays enough sage around the court, it'll ward <laughs> off the frying pan. <laughs> you put that sage in your eggs and use the frying pan. You if know, you're not, sage, put that sage in the tomato sauce. You got a hell of a pizza. Go. Oh, there we go. That'll work. That'll work. 
All right, if you're not subscribed to Locked On Celtics, I don't know where your head is. He's the host, John Corrales. John, we really do appreciate it all the time. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. I like I said before, having me on rejecting the screen, like wow, that's I didn't know I was worthy of that. So thank you very much. And if you like what you heard today, go back and listen to previous episodes of the going ISO editions of rejecting the screen. It's all in the same feed. And we go all the way back to, so if you're a Celtics fan, maybe you'd want to hear Ryan Rossillo. Maybe you'd want to hear Doug Gottlieb and Peter Vesey and Howard Beck and Casey Jacobson. The Boston Globe's Chad Finn has been on. Earl Watson told terrific Kobe stories. So did former Laker Robert Sacre told great Kobe stories. Brendan Haywood told the story about why he didn't join LeBron in Miami. Adam Morrison, mm-hmm. Sean Marion, Eddie Johnson, former Celtic Ala Abdul Nabi told the story of going to pick up Reggie Lewis to go to a basketball camp on the day that Reggie Lewis collapsed. Former Celtic Vin Baker was on the program. John Elmore, who was at Summer League with the Boston Celtics, <laughs> he's been on the show. Lindsey Hunter, Stu Jackson, Dante Jones, Reggie Theus, and so many more. You can listen at any time. You won't feel like you're going back in time listening to something. Just great NBA stories that you'll want to share with your friends. Everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On NBA, five days a week, national program. Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan, unique takes. Locked on fantasy basketball, Josh Lloyd. It's the number one fantasy basketball podcast out there. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board and your team every day. Just like there's locked on Celtics, there is a locked on every single team in the NBA, all 30 teams every single day on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.